You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our April Journal Club edition of Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Mate, I am good. I had a really lovely month, had a big holiday, back into Journal Club. I know, and we are a little late for April, but the good thing about that is we had such a great week of discussion uh, that we had to extend, so um, looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. It was a fantastic discussion this month. So uh, we talked about a paper that, you know, usually I choose a paper that I really, really love, and so I guess this week in the spirit of challenging ourselves um, and reflecting on information that we might not necessarily agree with, we looked at a paper called Impact of Child Death on Pediatric Trainees, and it was published uh, by Hollingsworth et al. in Archives of Disease in Childhood in 2017. And essentially, much as the title suggests, this article uh, aims to look at the emotional impact of child death on pediatric trainees, and they do that by the way of a survey of 302 pediatric trainees from the UK And essentially, they aimed to establish the point prevalence of individual symptoms that are related to acute stress reactions and post-traumatic stress disorder following involvement in a child's death, usually in hospital. Um, So for those who don't know, acute stress reaction, I'm no psychiatrist, but it could kind of be framed as the initial stress response from something bad happening um, that can be considered a prelude to PTSD, um, but it's also in, in some ways can be often normalized as sort of the physiological response that we get from a stressful reaction that may pass. And then if it becomes entrenched, uh, then you would be diagnosed formally with PTSD down the line when those symptoms are not going away. But in reporting the results of their study survey, because so far it's not sounding particularly SIM-based, um, they note that there's little evidence regarding the safety of clinical event debriefing in pediatric mortality cases specifically. And they report that they find that there may be an association between clinical debriefing and uh, stress reactions or PTSD to the point where they come pretty close to recommending against it, although they do kind of toe the line and say more evidence is required. Essentially, what this survey did was they sent out 604 surveys to pediatric trainees in the UK. They got about a 50% response rate. And in the survey, they just asked people to tick and flick whether they had any of those individual symptoms. So things like vivid memories, negative beliefs about yourself, or feeling emotionally numb. And then they asked some more questions about potential associated factors, uh, things that they might protect or worsen those kind of emotional symptoms. So things like participation in a clinical event debrief, exercise, whether they'd had any training on pediatric deaths, etc. And look, when it came to assessing the point prevalence of symptoms, they found that about 81% of trainees reported one or more symptoms. And then 9% of responders met the complete screening criteria for a stress reaction and 5% met the complete screening criteria for PTSD. And I would just want to emphasize that that doesn't mean that those people had PTSD, but by the initial screening criteria, it is a possibility. You've said, Ben, that you're not a psychiatrist, but you did quote some of the DSM-5 at me when we were talking about this earlier. And I think this is actually pretty relevant because clearly this is not a diagnosis generally made by someone filling out a survey. Correct. And I think that's a really important thing to note, as well as the fact that certainly, uh, depending on how much time you spent with Liz Crow, that an acute stress reaction is not 
necessarily while while it is described in psychiatry, it's not necessarily viewed as pathological per se. That that can be considered a normal emotional response to something as upsetting as a pediatric death. So I do feel like there was a fair amount of implied leak behind sending out a survey. Um, with a wide, wide range of symptoms that people could tick. And then if they got one of them reporting it as in the study, but also that sort of drawing this maybe subconscious or implied conclusion about the level of risk that these people have. So I, I did have a lot of concerns about messing up the difference between making a clinical diagnosis of PTSD and and measuring up a survey response. When it comes to the actual potential associations, though, or protective or um, the factors that might make you more at risk of developing PTSD. The authors basically found not much. There wasn't a statistically significant association between seniority, gender, age, working pattern, PICU experience, or even training in dealing with child death. But their results did show that the development of symptoms, not diagnoses, of ASR or PTSD Um, can be maybe associated with feelings of guilt. So people who reported feelings of guilt were more likely to have some of those symptoms. And also, um, specifically when it came to debriefing, they noted that there was a a statistically significant increase in the rate of survey responders who reported enough of those symptoms that they would have a potential diagnosis. And so from that, they closed the article by recommending that clear recommendations need to be made about the safety of debriefing sessions after the death of a child. As in keeping with existing evidence, our data suggests that debrief after the death of a child may be associated with the development of symptoms suggestive of ASR or PTSD. Are you worried, Vic? I'm not worried because... uh... I guess, like many in the comments, I had a few issues with the methodology here, Ben. The study design was a point prevalence survey, fine, by whatever measure. And then to go trawling through for associations, I think, is a little problematic as a design. But one of the things that I've learned from many of my quantitative research friends is one of these concepts of the fragility index, which is how many study participants would have had to have a different outcome for the result of the study to be different. And by my rough calculations, it might have taken only two trainees to have either reported uh, symptoms of feeling anxious or not being able to sleep, and it would have changed the whole study result. So I think there's a little problem with the study design. I think there's definitely a problem with the outcome measure. And I think even the correlation stats uh, wouldn't hold up to too many differences in people filling out those surveys. So it's not going to change my practice, I don't think. Uh, That said, like all of these things, it adds to the conversation and that is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And interestingly, um, one of the things I was worried about is, you know, we have a... um, a group of listeners, and I suspect that some of us are in strong agreement with certain things, and I worried that this would um, potentially turn into an exercise in sort of confirmation bias and that we'd all sort of potentially take this article uh, to pieces because we don't believe in what the conclusion is. But what I really loved about people's response is that actually people really appreciated the question. Um and felt that, that this is a really important area to explore. 
um, and that the the article, while we might disagree with a number of the methods, that there is there are it does add to the conversation, and there are points of value that come out from those survey responses that that generate. Um, information for further reflection. So Sonia Twig, who who summarised the article beautifully, um, put it that she said she was annoyed and intrigued by this study. She says, I like the questions it poses. I applaud the, uh, applaud the authors for their efforts in answering them, but I didn't think their met- measures or their survey method used in their study could answer these interesting questions. And issues raised included things you've already mentioned, but stuff like concern regarding linking association with causation, the selection bias that will come from more activated staff being the ones who will fill out this kind of voluntary survey, the chicken and the egg question that you mentioned regarding whether symptoms of an acute stress reaction affecting debriefing attendance, um, as well as the fact that the DSM-5 just really isn't designed as a survey. It's a set of diagnostic criteria that require clinical assessment and reality testing. In terms of methods, Ian Summers also discussed the real inherent dangers of lumping all types of debriefing into one research category. So he said, look, the risk of bundling immediate and delayed hot and cold psychological first aid, quality improvement and raw emotional events together as one overarching debriefing is really tempting but ultimately misleading. They exist on a spectrum of emotional charge, risk, availability, duration post-event, in-team lead versus outside provider, facilitator comfort, training and expertise, and rather than lump them in all together, we should see them as an overlapping continuum we can divide up to add a little more meaning to the discussion. Despite some misgivings regarding the methods used, people were alarmed by some of the data that was revealed, particularly regarding the lack of debriefing training for many of the facilitators that was reported and the lack of structure that was being reported in different clinical debriefing programs, as well as the fact that there was a perceived lack of support from many of the pediatric trainees post-pediatric death. And I think the other theme that really stuck out for me was that people really highlighted this stuff is really nuanced, it's complex, and it's important. And many responders flagged how important they felt clinical event debriefing was to their departments, but also how important important staff well-being was in general. And the challenges, it seemed, are that such issues really require nuance and a variety of approaches. And it was really nice to have um, Kate Bassett come along, who's a good friend uh, who hasn't been on the Journal Club before. And she said, look, we cannot have a single solution to such complex issues. I'm just going to quote her a little bit. She says, I worry that in our desperate search for wellness, we seek a one-size-fits-all solution to the psychological traumas we encounter. Where I work, all streams are invited to the debrief, and I worry that times when our when our medical minutiae focus has offered me comfort, it's done little to help our operational colleagues. Surely a debrief can only offer a reflection on the events and a reminder to practice whatever we have in our resilience toolkit. We need to be given that toolkit early. Our work lives are a continuum of micro-traumas that build up in our psyche, the professional discourtesy from an overworked and angry colleague, a failed procedure, heaven forbid the harsh words of a loved one who craves more time from us. We must learn and teach methods of managing the small things so the muscle memory kicks in and helps us when the tidal wave crashes over us in difficult clinical situations. And despite this complexity, though, Shannon McNamara closed this month's discussion with this. These conversations are risky and deeply important. They should be optional and treated with respect and reverence. I used to, avo- I used to avoid them due to fear of causing harm. Now I realize that people often need to talk about these cases in the moment 
I think it's better to lean in and try to talk about them as best they can, even if it's not perfect. Yeah, one of the things I really liked this month was how many new discussants we had been. So clearly people did feel something about the topic and uh, in particular really trying to find out more about what is the nature of distress after these kinds of events and how can we seek to help that. I think that actually is an incredibly important aim. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, from the study itself, that the data they generated suggested that the prevalence rate of PTSD symptoms was actually lower than the general population rate, uh, which they rationalize away. Which they rationalize away. <laughs> <laughs> they said, oh, well, they're, they're young. The, the, the people filling out the survey are young, therefore, they, in terms of lifetime prevalence, they maybe haven't accumulated as much, as much. But you could easily make the same argument that actually maybe there's something that's happened in their training that protects them. Um, it's, mm. This is fascinating stuff, and it was, it was very clear that people really care about this. It, there's, there's a very strong movement towards bringing it in in more places, and, and people want to help their staff get better and feel better. Excellent. And we had Stuart Rose back uh, giving us some wisdom as well. Yeah. And so, look, the man crush that Ben Simon has on Stuart Rose is fairly well established <laughs> in simulcast law. But so he is an emergency physician from Calgary. He is the mastermind behind the Info debrief, Clinical Debriefing Program that we've previously discussed on Journal Club and on Simulcast. And he is a good guy to ride a lime scooter through the streets of, of San Antonio with i really liked stewart's response he would be someone who i suspect has you know shares a very strong belief in in the pros of clinical event debriefing um and he starts the conversation by saying as an adult emergency medicine physician who tries to debrief as many of my resuscitations in the ed as i can who has created a process that encourages others to do the same and is actively trying to increase the number of cases that get debriefed each month i've spent a lot of time reflecting on whether debriefing clinical cases could place myself or my colleagues in a position where we would intentionally be doing harm to our team members I do not think this article provides evidence that I should not be debriefing or that I'm putting my team in harm's way if we debrief. In fact, its conclusions seem to be the opposite of what I see in my practice. And Stuart then goes essentially full Pico on this paper. And uh, please do download the, the article PDF and fully read his response because it's lovely and it's thoughtful. It's also respectful, but he doesn't hold back, I guess. Um, and But what I do love is that rather than just sort of embracing our bias as sort of being pro-clinical debriefing, he really does search through the article for lessons that are of value to us as well. So he goes through the population and, and highlights how disheartening it was to hear how many clinical event debriefs are occurring without any training. And he states that he agrees with the author's statement that seemingly random and unmonitored nature of debriefing following the death of a child is a real concern. He echoes Ian's concern that there's little definition of what a debrief is or how it's done, um, and as such argues that we're measuring an intervention that's poorly defined, and also highlights that the trainees have a, high, have a lower overall rate of PTSD symptoms than the reported prevalence in the general population. He says that his takeaway is that a single debrief by an untrained facilitator after a very stressful event is not adequate support for any clinician especially for a trainee in the early stage of their career. I don't think it provides evidence that I shouldn't be debriefing in the ED. And he argues that the thoughtful comments in this month's journal club reflect that as frontline clinicians, we recognize the importance of debriefing after the high-stake events that we experience at work. 
These events are an integral part of our professional life, and while we are searching for ways to debrief that will do no harm, we should acknowledge that debriefing can change the culture of our workplaces, provide opportunities to support ourselves and our colleagues, celebrate the excellent care that we provide and identify areas to improve the care we deliver for our patients. We need to do this. So thank mm-hmm. you so much, Stuart, and for everybody who came along, particularly our uh, new journal clubbers, and I hope we see you again in the future. And Ben, can I ask you that question right back again? How is it going to change your practice? Good question. I think for me, it's going to make me think a lot more about making sure that the clinical event debriefs that we have are done by the right people with training and not seeing it as an individual intervention that's going to solve anything, but as part of the package that our service provides for our staff that will allow us to get stronger as clinicians and healthcare professionals, but also to send a strong signal that we care for our staff. You could just rewrite the conclusion of the paper with that. It would sound great. <laughs> it does. But I think also, I, I guess I have a slightly hidden agenda in that I, th- I think this is an article that may be quoted back to us when people do try to institute uh, clinical de- event debriefing um, in their units. And I think it's important that um, we can often take a fairly reductionist view of the evidence and quote the evidence back at us without actually reading the papers particularly well. And I think this may be an important one that we need to know what really formed those conclusions from because we may need to debate them. Hmm. Okay, well, timely then, and I'm glad you brought it to our attention. Thanks, mate. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, well, should we jump into these other papers now? I'm looking forward to it because I think these papers are awesome, all of them. I really, right, I'm really good. glad you put them in front of my eyes. Sounds like feedback. And the first one is from BMJ Stell, April 2019, entitled In Simulation and Its Effects on Patient Outcomes. And this is by Goldstein and colleagues from Toronto. Now, this is a systematic review and essentially they have said, and I quote, they want to determine if there is evidence in the literature of in situ simulation having a correlation with patient outcomes in the domains of mortality and morbidity. So pretty high bar. And I guess the introduction to this concept is that uh, there's now emerging lots of reports of improved process measures from in situ simulation. Think of all those articles that we've read about time to lysis in stroke, time-based targets in trauma, uh, identifying latent safety threats. Uh, There's also plenty of reports of improved clinician and team performance, particularly in resuscitation metrics, and think about Betsy Hunt's work, time to defib, CPR quality, and emerging, and I'm going to claim some of this, uh, the impact on relationships and culture of insight simulation. But are we really getting so-called hard patient outcomes like morbidity and mortality? It sounds like an important question, Ben. What do you think? I was really excited when I saw the title because I think it is an important question. I think it's great that it's being asked and I was looking forward to the findings. Okay, well, this is what they did. Uh, As I said, it's a systematic review. So they did a database review of relevant articles and they had to include that it was in situ simulation, had to involve healthcare providers or teams, and it had to have direct patient outcomes, uh, example, morbidity and mortality. And unsurprisingly, there weren't that many. Uh, And they described their methodology and it looked pretty robust to me, one of those little tables of how many they found and why they excluded them. But they ended up with nine studies. 
Uh, and so instead of doing a meta-analysis, because as you might imagine, there were slightly different outcome measures, they weren't looking at exactly the same questions. So they did what they call a narrative synthesis, where they actually listed the nine studies and described what those outcomes were. And they've got a little table of that in the paper. Uh, but essentially, the nine studies involved things like resuscitation outcomes um, and improved mortality with that, which was probably the biggest group, uh, pediatric intensive care mortality, decreased infections and decreased adverse events. Most of the methodologies were pre-post, i.e. they measured the rate of morbidity or mortality beforehand, then they had their simulation intervention, and then they measured it afterwards, which again isn't perfect, but still um, that's better than not having any patient outcome in there. And unsurprisingly, all of them were interprofessional simulation. So um, I don't know. I'm not surprised there were only nine, Ben, but uh, at least there were those nine. Yeah, I agree. I think they're hard questions to ask and hard to research well, and uh, it's a really nice start. It's interesting then when they look at their limitations. So they do say that one of the challenges they had, and this is, I guess, the tricky part of this paper, is query causative effect. So what they say is, I think appropriately, most of these in situ simulation programs are part of an intervention strategy, i.e. you don't just say, we're just going to do SIMS to look at our improved pediatric ICU care. We're also going to be doing that as part of a more comprehensive education program, maybe some systems changes. And then, as they say, and I'm going to quote again, it's increasingly challenged to isolate the impact of the in-situ simulation as an independent intervention. And they sort of come back to this in their suggestions for future research and say we should be doing more to try and isolate it. And yet as a practitioner of this, I don't really want to isolate it. The whole point about this is that it's integrated. So I understand it from a research point of view, but I sort of don't want people to be isolating simulation from a practice point of view. Yeah, definitely. And I think the way that they differentiated that is I did appreciate that they did at least sort of acknowledge it and didn't try to ignore that this is a really big spectrum. I didn't read it quite as strongly as you did in terms of their emphasis that we need to separate it more. I thought it was sort of acknowledging that actually this is really important and maybe it doesn't matter too much if we can't hammer down the causation to specifically insight you as long as we can prove that patient outcomes are actually being affected by what we do. Yes, I agree. It's interesting because I'm recalling a conversation I had with Adam Cheng about 12 months ago along these same lines and that he was getting some grief from ethics committees for some of his research proposals because he hadn't adequately isolated the impact of the simulation intervention. Uh, And again, we were just sort of struggling with this idea conceptually about how at one level we want this to be integrated and involved and yet from a purely research standpoint, uh, isolating it out is going to give you a more uh, internally valid results, even though it may limit its external generalizability. The other thing that that kind of brings up as potentially a limitation is that the way these research, that sort of a research question is set up comes from what some might call a very positivist uh, worldview, i.e. is this working? Instead of really probably the better understanding is, you know, how does it work? Why does it work? When does it work? And for whom does it work? That uh, is probably the better set of questions for most simulation research. But again, that's probably showing my bias there. No, we just need to get more ethics committees listening to Simulcast. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that, Ben, but (laughs) get into it. There's an intervention for you. 
Exactly. Anyway, I think their conclusion, obviously I liked it, evidence that the incorporation of in situ simulation training is correlated with improved morbidity and mortality. Definitely one to put in some of your funding proposals if you're looking for it. And I think the articles that have been done and that are listed there are actually very well done and it shows at least in those contexts for those people uh, they can make a big difference. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, well, going on to our next study, and this is actually really interesting, and I'll admit a disclosure here and that I'm friends with the people at St. Mike's in Toronto that did this, but that doesn't mean their work is any less good. So this (laughs) is a paper also from BMJ Stell in uh, March 2019 called Tracking Workflow During High Stakes Resuscitation, the Application of a Novel Clinician movement tracing tool during in situ trauma simulation. And this is by Andra Petrasoniak and his colleagues, as I said, at St. Mike's in Toronto. Uh, And the way that they kind of have described this is that they're using high fidelity in situ simulation trauma sessions to apply this novel tracing tool to track clinician movement during a resuscitation. So think about all those things that we've always wanted to know. And so in their introduction, they kind of set up this question uh, saying the way that we move around in a resuscitation and our workflow analysis can identify some inefficiencies. Simply asking people, what do you do in a resuscitation is pretty flawed because most of us have a very uh, inexact idea about what we do when you compare it to direct observation. And the good thing about in-situ simulation is it gives us a chance to observe this in a pretty authentic way, but also a standardized way in that we can present teams with a pretty consistent challenge, unlike in the real world where, as we know, every trauma is kind of different. This is research where simulation is actually the environment, not the entity being studied. And I think uh, we haven't reviewed as many papers like that on Simulcast, but I think it's actually a nice application of simulation. Because we did talk about... um the the human factor paper that these guys released earlier and i think they did allude to some of this stuff but there's this kind of theme of reverse engineering some of the lessons in sim and taking it back to critical care that i just found so exciting exactly this is a way of doing some rapid prototyping design thinking kind of redesign so what did they actually do so this was part of their trust study that's been uh, reported elsewhere where they did 12 uh, trauma sims over a year And this smaller study that is reported in BMJ Stell looked at uh, three of those simulations, all of which were a cricothyrotomy case. So same case each time, trauma case, facial trauma, and as they described, there was a predictable and timed decrease in oxygen saturations and the only successful airway intervention was a cricothyrotomy. So all the teams presented with exactly the same situation of facial trauma and then patient deteriorates until they do this surgical airway. And they picked this one, and I think their rationale is important because they say it's rare, it's high stakes. Uh, it is typically performed by a single clinician, so they, when they were tracking the movements, it was really one person's movements that would make it simpler. And there was a very well-defined start-finish time. And in this case, that start-finish time was from when the team leader said, we're going to do a surgical airway to when it was actually achieved. So they did these three simulations. Um, Each of them was video recorded by four cameras. They seem to have a lot of GoPros over there at St. Mike's. And uh, then they analysed it using this 
software application that is a tracing tool. And from what I can tell, the people look look at the video, they use the tracing tool, and they basically just, with a mouse, track the movement of the person concerned that this gen generates a couple of things, some line diagrams, a little heat map of whereabouts in that resuscitation room that person spent the most time, plus also some graphs of how long it took them to do the procedure and what kind of distance that they covered. So it is actually a pretty cool um, tool. What do you think, Ben? Oh, it was so cool. (laughs) It's so so clever and um, generates a new sort of type of data that I haven't seen being generated in lots of places that will hopefully help us. I was fascinated. I know. It's worth going on to this uh, article literally to look at the um, pictures that they've got of this tracing tool and what it shows you as a sort of heat map of where we all are. Now, I know you're interested, though, in how they actually went. So they, as I said, tracked So they ended up tracking three different healthcare providers in each of these simulations who performed the crocothyrotomy. And actually there's a big difference between their performance. So the time that it took ranged from two minutes at best to six minutes and 29 uh, seconds. And they actually found that there were three quite relevant factors that seemed to affect that length of time and the distance that people travelled. And one of those was team role assignment and task allocation. So the person who was slowest spent more than twice as far as the other two walking around, largely getting equipment that was necessary for this procedure. Uh, Knowledge of clinical space was relevant, but also something called equipment bundling. The two slower performances were used an open technique where they had to go and get multiple things to put together at the bedside, whereas the person who was fastest used the prepackaged kit that was available, which made it much quicker. So these would seem like intuitive kind of outcomes, but fascinating how they actually tracked what the person was doing, the so-called hunter-gatherer approach to procedural performance, which didn't seem to work very well. So uh, what do you think, Ben? That's a pretty interesting outcome. Yeah, and look, I, I know previously we've talked about some of those eye-tracking softwares and I've been a bit more cynical than you in terms of how useful that data actually is but for some reason for me this just generated a whole lot more information that while I couldn't necessarily see heaps of information that I'd find clinically useful for myself right now I can see that in the future this is going to generate some interesting stuff. Yeah I agree and I think obviously there's some specific outcomes for things like crocothyrotomy and uh, I we're reading it feeling a little bit happy that we have one consistent kit that's in our second drawer of our airway trolley. Mm. Uh, I do think it's also a call though for the sort of collective competence of the team needs to get the equipment to the bedside so the um, person doing the procedure can get it done because that makes a big difference than if they try and do it themselves. But I think the other points in the discussion are obviously more generically relevant, which is a discussion of the utility of sort of tracking in general and looking at some of the other available methods to do that. So there are other ways that you can track people just using their mobile phones and RFID technology. And then also, obviously, the use of in situ simulation for things like this workflow analysis, which we've had a sort of intuitive hunch about, but this is definitely a way of quantifying it. Uh, and that, I think, I agree, is a very useful thing. Mm, looking forward to more. You're listening to Simulcast. All right. And then our last paper. 
which I included for the specific reason that this paper has just been named the Enaxel Best Research Article of the Year for 2018. And uh, for those who might not know about Enaxel, that's the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning. So a very big, important professional association, uh, probably fairly US-based, but definitely international in its reach. And uh, I've also put it in because... Jesse and Vic from Simulcast have just got themselves an Oculus Rift and we've been playing with it. So that gives you a hint uh, as to the title of the paper. I just went on a VR coaster for the first time. It was awesome. <laughs> so, yes, the title of this is Using Game-Based Virtual Reality with Haptics for Skill Acquisition. And this is by But et al. in Clinical Simulation in Nursing from March 2018. And... Uh, what they basically did was try to assess the usability and learner reactions to a game-based virtual reality system to practice urinary catheterization uh, and also using uh, speed and competence as a measure of skill acquisition at a sort of two-week delayed period. So the background, uh, we know simulation is good for procedural skill training, but albeit imperfect. Uh, we also are starting to read a lot more about how game-based learning is fun, plus or minus effective, question mark. Uh, virtual reality is pretty well established in surgical skill training and particularly in the context of deliberate practice and a mastery learning model. And so they also then said, well, this is how we developed a virtual reality uh, application for IDC insertion. So they said, sure, you could do it on a screen, but having this three-dimensional headgear and haptics obviously adds a level of uh, physical realism to this task that is a little bit hard to do if you're just doing it on a screen. So VR, Ben, that's a favourite of yours, is it? Uh, or you've just been on a roller coaster? <laughs> it wasn't until I went on the roller coaster. Now I love it. <laughs> I took my son to Legoland and you go on this little roller coaster. It was fantastic. And you get turned yeah. into a little Lego man. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there's no doubt um, having had a few of those headsets on myself, both looking at medical applications and, as it turns out, riding a roller coaster, it is a pretty interesting experience. And I suspect most people uh, have had something like that. Although, interestingly, um, one of the I will get to the main result. But one of the reported measures was that out of the 20 participants, only seven were self-reported gamers. I thought that was a bit disappointing considering they were probably largely millennials mm. doing this. Oh, there we go. Anyway, kids, that don't make them like they used to. <laughs> All right, so their methods. They had 20 undergraduate nursing students and all of whom were actually had already been taught IDC insertion. So it wasn't a completely new task to them. They'd learned it usually on a part-task trainer. And these 20 students they put into two groups. Ten did a VR uh, group and 10 were the control group. This importantly was IDC insertion using VR for deliberate practice. So it wasn't their first go, as I said. So the tr control group, they had one-on-one -on -one deliberate practice opportunity using a part-task trainer. So the student came in, got to practice, and they had a faculty member there, literally one-on-one -on -one assisting them as needed. Whereas the experimental group had one hour with an Oculus Rift device. So again, headset, two little things in your hand that give you haptic feedback. 
And they had about 15 minutes of orientation because they may not have known how the thing worked and then they could practice for as long as they liked for the rest of the hour. And then their outcome measures were a couple of things that I wasn't particularly familiar with, but a system usability survey and a user reaction survey. And uh, the details are there in the paper, but they essentially ask you questions you might imagine about uh, how much did they like it? How much did they feel like they lost track of time? How much did they feel like they would do it again? And then two weeks later, they uh, students came back and did the procedure and this time were assessed via visual observation, both in terms of the time it took them to put in the IDC and a checklist of competence. So this seems like a pretty good uh, way of investigating the question, Ben. What do you think of their methods? Yeah, look, I, th- I liked the emphasis on this being about um, deliberate practice rather than new skill acquisition. I guess at the end of the day, it was that it was still being tested on the, the mannequin itself, but I also appreciate the ethical and intrapersonal problems of trying to test catheter insertion any other way. So I, I thought it was pr- uh, well designed. Yeah, I agree, certainly to answer the question that they uh, posed. So what did they find? Unsurprisingly, I think they did find that it was acceptable, they felt confident, they found it easy to use. This is the virtual reality. Uh, They said it was fun, engaging, uh, it made subjects lose track of time, which is apparently a good thing. Uh, And then when they sort of analysed some of the... uh, comments that the students made they said that they felt motivated there was some sense of competition and they could focus during their practice and interestingly the VR group chose to practice longer 25 minutes versus 14 minutes so that was out of the hour that they could have potentially practiced and they did more procedures in that time so the average number for the VR group was that they did three IDC insertions whereas the part-task training group was 1.8. But interestingly, two weeks later, they were of equal ability. So it did not seem to confer any improved performance uh, at two weeks' time. So I guess there's a few different ways to look at that. I guess we've definitely got a tick here on user acceptability, feasibility, but not necessarily any superiority in terms of skill acquisition is probably where I got with this, Ben. What did you think? Look, I think any... Any intervention that makes students rate urinary catheter insertion as highly engaging and enjoyable, I think they're on to a winner. But um, <laughs> I loved that rather than just focusing on whether one teaching method was better than the other, they actually really explored what were the factors that changed for the learners. So, you know, like the things that you've already outlined, the time they spent, their level of engagement, their rating of the technology, they outlined the costing as well, which I thought was um, useful from a planning perspective, but also it was impressively cheap. And I think from a meta level, it's becoming clearer and clearer that this stuff is uh, starting to approach financial feasibility in a lot of areas where five years ago it would have been um, sort of prohibitive. So I got a lot of useful information out of it even if I didn't find that one method was better than the other. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think there's plenty more work to be done here. I do think that uh, the impact may be bigger on the early learning curve. The reality is they were pretty good at putting in this IDC, whichever group they were at, and it's not the most difficult procedure. Uh, So we may see something where the learning curve is a little bit longer and more complicated. That might show up some difference. Uh, And I guess the other thing is, 
it may ultimately be more accessible if you can just do this because part task trainers although not that expensive you don't tend to have one at home um because that would be a bit weird <laughs> but whereas this kind of thing might be something that people can practice at home if they're motivated on their own asynchronously and uh, particularly if we can incorporate sort of feedback uh into that and i think that's where the sort of mastery learning deliberate practice element comes in so yeah i enjoyed it i think it deserved its award and uh, congratulations to the authors and we look forward to more absolutely so ben uh that's journal club for april uh where to from here what's our next paper yeah so look i'm taking a little bit of a break for the rest of may um just to catch up on some real life stuff and then we're gonna start in june with um a little bit of a tribute in that the fabulous eve purdy your simulation fellow and anthropologist is leaving australia and um you and her have done some beautiful work on transmission of culture through simulation and i really wanted to highlight that as she heads away so uh we are going to follow up the podcast that i know you and jesse have already recorded with eve with just encouraging people to read uh this paper so it's called identifying and transmitting the culture of emergency medicine through simulation it's published open access in academic emergency medicine education and training and i'm going to do a pigeon pair so along with the paper i'm wanting people to read uh, Eve's wonderful ISNET blog uh, entitled Simulation and Cultural Compression. I think there's a lot of fascinating stuff that you guys have uncovered that people in the simulation community aren't necessarily all aware of yet, and uh, I, I really want to make that happen. All right. Well, we're looking forward to it. I may spend most of the podcast crying because, yes, <laughs> Eve. Uh, Me too. In fact, I'm not even yeah. saying she's going home. I'm just saying she's going to Canada for a year mm, mm. in the hope that she'll be back. I like but, that. Uh, we'll just have right. 45 minutes of ugly crying from Vic Brazel and Ben Simon. <laughs> that's what it's going to be. Excellent. Look forward to it, listeners. <laughs> All right, Ben. Well, as you know, I'm in Boston at the beginning of my day, but I know you are in Australia at the end of yours, so we better let you uh, get off to sleep. And it's been a pleasure as always. Absolutely. Looking forward to chatting more. Bye, mate. All right. Well, this is Ben Simon and Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. 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 